Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's verse 5, about individuals in the latter, no, chapter 4, verse 1, about individuals in the latter days giving attendance or, or giving ear, giving weight to doctrines of demons. They'll, they're going to move away from the faith and start giving attendance or, or ear to uh, doctrines that proceed from demons. And if we understand that Satan is a liar, his demons are heavily involved in deceit, and the doctrines from demons are doctrines that have an appearance of truth, and oftentimes will have uh, nuggets of truth, even huge sections of truth, but they're always perverted some way to, to make you go off mark. And that seems to be almost universally the case with the idea of godliness, the, the, even within fundamental circles, uh, the idea or the understanding of godliness is not understood. It's completely misunderstood. And there's a number of reasons for that. And so I, I did some research on this. I spent some time looking back at some of these things. And hopefully uh, it'll help appreciate more what the Bible actually does say about godliness if we understand what some of the misunderstandings are. So first of all, if we, I, I wrote these up on the board. There, there's nothing deep. It's just I'm going to be referring to several of these, and it might be less confusing if I can, if we can see them physically and not just having to mentally move back and forth. So obviously, we, we have an understanding of what or who God is. Oh, that might be pointed in the wrong direction. Thanks, Ryan. And the word godly is an English word. It's not a, a Greek word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's an English word. <clears throat> if we all don't understand what godly is, then we go to an English dictionary. Now, this is a Britannical World Language Dictionary. It's, it's Britannica's edition of the Oxford Dictionary of the English Bible. So it's one of the most complete English dictionaries there is, most comprehensive. And under the definition of godly, well, no, let me, let me hold up just for a moment. Let me, let me go to this suffix, or this, uh, yeah, the suffix first, the L-Y suffix. Every, anybody, everybody understand what L-Y means when it's added to a word? There's, there's a couple of different ways you can use. I'm going to limit my definitions to just how they apply to, to our study this morning. Uh, going to the Oxford Dictionary, if you look at L-Y in the English Dictionary, it says it's a suffix, and it means like of the nature of, belonging, or pertaining to, used to form adjectives from nouns, as in manly or godly. So he actually uses godly as an illustration of this L-Y ending, meaning like the person or thing that it looks back to. So godly, according to the English dictionary, means <clears throat> like or having the character of, of God problem comes if you go to the word godly a few pages back in the same exact dic dictionary it gives a totally different definition under the ly it says godly means having the character or being the same or being like god but under the definition of godly it says filled with reverence and love for god or pious so that's not the same thing having love for god is not the same thing as being like god so like God is the one definition, or love God is their second definition. So right off the bat, we can see where some misunderstandings or confusion concerning what this word means is from our very own dictionary that defines the term. It's inconsistent. It doesn't translate the term or, or give the same definition consistently. <coughs> Now, if you go back in time the, and try to trace the word back, I went to another dictionary. It was called a, an etymological dictionary. Etymological means it goes back and seeks to trace the origins of a word. <clears throat> and if you look at the origins of godly, that dictionary says that they can trace it back to about the mid to late 14th century. But beyond that, it becomes confusing because the spelling in the in the English of that time of godly was exactly the same as the word for goodly. And so being able to distinguish between which word is used beyond uh, past the, the end of the 14th century is confusing because these definitions start becoming used interchangeably before this. And the definition for goodly is something that's attractive. 
or beneficial. And so another source of potential source for confusion concerning this involves the very English language that confuses these two different words that again, they don't mean the same thing. Now that goes back to the 14th century. <clears throat> Going back before the 14th century, now there's, <clears throat> this is, I believe it's the very first uh, dictionary that is an, uh, it's an English lexicon of the Greek New Testament. And it's a, it's a lexicon, it was published in 1653, and this is actually from 1653. And it, <clears throat> in being an English lexicon of the New Testament, at that time, they were still heavily involved in using the uh, Latin Vulgate. And so many of these words that they have in here, even though they call it an English lexicon, some of these words are actually Latin words because they didn't have an exactly English counterpart or for whatever reason, he chose to use the Latin. And if you look in this dictionary at the subject of godliness, his definition in back then is, uh, where is it out here? I marked it down somewhere here, but oh, here it is. Uh, it just is the word for pious. So uh, in, in this period of time, they equated godliness with piety. Now, of course, to understand piety, what in the world is piety? So we gotta go and, and look at that term because this dictionary says that they're the same. And if you look at piety, it's um, interesting because it actually comes from the Latin and it refers to being, in, in 1653, it meant kindness. Now, this is going to be a large percentage of our confusion concerning godliness in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament word that is translated in our English as being godly is kasid, which is actually the word for the Hebrew word for kindness. It doesn't mean godliness, it means kindness. Well, how do they get kindness? I mean, how do they get godliness out of kindness? It's because of this word piety. The Latin Vulgate translates that word in the Hebrew as pious, and so because that's what the Hebrew word meant back then, it meant kindness. But if you look at how that word is used in more modern times, the word piety, the word kindness doesn't even appear in the definition. Let's see if I got the right, I got the wrong one. Too, too, many, too many dictionaries here. Piety is means activated by reverence for a supreme being, religious or godly. And so later on, apparently, this dictionary was published in 1964. At some point after the 1650s, the word pious in the Latin changed meaning from being kindness or being a synonym for kindness into being something, someone who is just religious or devoted to a God. And that's how it is used today. But back when it was used a few hundred years ago, it actually was a synonym for kindness. So you see piety in the Old Testament they because of the Hebrew word is kindness, but in the modern translations, they translate it godly because the, the word for piety has changed definitions over the last few hundred years. And so that gives us another clue as to why there's confusion concerning the term, because when we see the word piety in our modern translations or look to a, a Bible dictionary, our Bible dictionaries are based on later scholarship, and it's based on, on the, the misunderstanding of, of the change in meanings of this word piety. And so rather than a Bible dictionary equating piety with kindness, like it originally meant, they use the more modern understanding of the word to be devotion to God or religious. And so when you see <coughs> definitions of godliness, you will see it equated with piety, <coughs> And their def definition of piety is being religious or devoted to God. So their, their misunderstanding of godliness is that it's somebody who's really religious or somebody who is really devote to their religion in some capacity. <clears throat> now we take that another step further. 
the un prefix. I don't think there's much misunderstanding mystery as to what un means. It means it negates whatever it's, it's uh, modifying. So instead of being godly, it's which is like God, it's the opposite of being like God, which means um, wicked, evil, whatever. If you look at the definition for ungodly in the English dictionary, it gives an actually pretty accurate picture of what godliness is, or excuse me, ungodliness is having no reverence for God or impious, but then it adds some things to that. It adds unholy or sinful. <clears throat> but um, under their definition of godliness, it doesn't include being righteous or not sinful. <laughs> it just says the person who's godly is a person who's pious, and a person who's pious is somebody who's really religious. But a person who's ungodly is wicked. <clears throat> so they, they throw these English terms out, but they don't translate them consistently or even according to the rules of, of English's own grammar. Uh, so <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of confusion, I think, concerning what godliness really and what it really looks like, what it really is. <clears throat> now we take that into the New Testament. We have <clears throat> this word, uh, eusebice, which is usually translated godly or godliness in, in the New Testament. And it, the definition for this word is a devotion to God. That's what it means. And yet in the New Testament is not translated devotion to God. It's translated godly. So if we go to 1 Timothy. First Timothy chapter 3. We touched on this. We're going to look more closely at it. First Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16 it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and so on. So we have this mystery of godliness. But it's not the word godliness here, it's our word use of ice, which is on our board of here. I think we don't probably have to stretch our minds too far to recognize that God. Uh, the word godly or ungodly has the word, the title for deity in it as its root. Uh, in the Greek, it would be theos or whatever. <clears throat> but in the English, we have a, a title for God with the L-Y ending or the U-N prefix. But the word eusebice doesn't have a name for God anywhere contained within, its, <clears throat> within the word. <clears throat> it means a devotion to deity, but... Um, it doesn't contain the word God. So it doesn't mean godly. Doesn't, it doesn't have the word God in there in any way, shape. It doesn't have any of the names for God contained within the word. It doesn't have theos or, theos or Elohim or, or any of the Hebrew or, or New Testament understand kurios for Lord. It doesn't have the new, any names for deity within it. It's eusebice, which refers to a <clears throat> religious devotion. And so when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 4, it doesn't say great indeed is the mystery of godliness it actually says great indeed is the mystery of devotion to deity or devotion to god now something tim shared with me this morning before we started was that this term actually uh, had its origins as being fear-based in other words this devotion was got to god wasn't just out of the goodness of everybody's heart it was because they were scared to death that if they weren't devoted to him he'd zap them with a bolt of lightning so to speak and we can see that frequently happen in the old testament God, maybe not zapped with lightning, but the earth opened their mouth up and swallowed people. God had uh, one particular individual swallowed by, <clears throat> by a big fish. Uh, he had uh, fire, balls of fire rain down from heaven and, and summon rights. We, we've seen God uh, completely annihilate the wicked oftentimes in the Old Testament. It came down hard. And so this idea of devotion to God being fear-based has a very strong Old Testament flavor to it, even though it's a New Testament word. The origins were fear-based, which is very in keeping with what the Old Testament saints view of God with. They were told to fear God. Why did they fear God? Because most of the Ten Commandments, if you broke them, they involved the death penalty. You serve God with fear, literally fear for your very life. In this verse, 
great indeed is the mystery of godliness. One thing to refresh our memory with, I was either last week or the week before, we touched on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. I just want to look at that briefly so we can refresh our memory of what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, that's not right. 1 Timothy. Maybe it was 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.15. Well, now I can't find it here. 2 Timothy, oh, 3 5. I put a one in front of my note. It's 2 Timothy 3 5. That's why I can't find it. I'm 10 verses off. Okay. 2 Timothy 3 5 says it follows warning Timothy to uh, beware of certain individuals that are going to come into church in the latter times. And they're living in the latter times as he writes this. We're living in the latter times. And he talks about these individuals having. A lot of undesirable qualities in verse one and verse two, but he says that these individuals are going to have an appearance of godliness. That's our same word, use of vice. They have an appearance of devotion to God. It's not the word godliness, it's the word for devotion to God. They have an appearance of being devoted to God. And this, but but he says the power, they deny that they say no to the power. They don't recognize the power that produces proper devotion for God. They say no to that, they deny it. And so Paul tells Timothy to avoid these individuals that um, have an appearance, but um, are saying no to the power. Now, this word godliness in this passage does not have the definite article. And it was something, remember, we, we emphasized that because what this is actually saying is these have an appearance of a kind of devotion to God. It has the characteristics of being devoted to God. But it doesn't say that they have an appearance of being devoted to God. They have an appearance of being devoted to a kind of devotion to uh, the things of God. A kind of, of religious zeal or, or whatever towards the things of God. He says they have an appearance of that. So what he's saying is, is he's hinting at the fact that there can be more than one kind of godliness or one kind of thing that looks like godliness there's the genuine article and then there's something there's another kind of that looks like the genuine article or looks similar but is different so that they're what he's saying is there are different aspects to devotion to god and the type of of godliness that these individuals are demonstrating he says that's not the genuine article it looks similar to it it has similar qualities to it but it's not the real it's not the real deal but back in 1 Timothy chapter 3.16, he uses the definite article. When we have this verse here, when he says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of the godliness. He's talking about a different godliness than he is in 2 Timothy 3.5. Because this, this godliness has the definite article, which means it's emphasizing one specific kind of, of godliness. And so he's demonstrating or emphasizing that this is the real deal. This is the genuine article. This is the godliness. This is the God or the, the real, the genuine devotion for God. Our translations translate godliness, but it's devotion for God. This is the real thing. Beware of those who demonstrate a devotion for God that is not the real thing because they deny the power that produces that. <clears throat> Excuse me. This idea of mystery, I reference this, but I'm going to turn there because I don't know if, if we're all on the same sheet of music, perhaps. On, in Ephesians chapter 3, we have, I'm just going to touch on this briefly because we have the definition for mystery here. Uh, Josh went over this pretty uh, thoroughly, fairly recently. Tim's gone over this a number of times. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. Well, verses three through five says, uh, Paul's saying that this mystery was made known to me by revelation, uh, as I've written briefly, verse four, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of the Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. So we have the definition of a mystery here is not something that is kept secret. It's something that was secret, but is now revealed. And if we understand 
that a mystery is something that wasn't known to mankind prior to it being identified here. It was something that couldn't be known in previous times. And so when Paul is talking to Timothy about the mystery concerning the godliness, it was, or the devotion to God, I, I keep slipping my tongue too, because I'm so in the habit of, of, of reading this the way our English does, and it's not correct. It's the, the genuine devotion for God was a mystery. But that brings up some real questions. Were there individuals in the Old Testament that were devoted to God? Was the, the only devotions to God show up when, when, after the day of Pentecost when the church was formed? And, and before that, all Old Testament, no, none of the Old Testament saints were ever devoted to God? That would be totally bogus. I mean, look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not going to read all this, but... <clears throat> This hammers home. It doesn't have the, the word for devotion here, but it certainly is clearly demonstrating it. Hebrews chapter 12 starts off with this uh, statement that we are, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us. And then he goes on and lists this entire grocery list of Old Testament saints that demonstrated such devotion for, to, for God, they suffered greatly as a result of their, like I said, he doesn't use the term devotion, but he's describing it. He says that um, uh, verse three, consider him who um, endured uh, sinners against himself. Uh, verse you want to think, chapter yeah, one. I want, yeah, I'm on yeah. chapter off. I want to go to chapter 11. Thank you. I, I don't know why I wrote chapter 12 on my notes here, but chapter 12 is our chapter 11. I mean, is our famous faith chapter that starts off with, with Abel and his obedience to, to faith. We have verse one, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word conviction indicates that this, these individuals were so decided in their minds that God's promises were true, they devoted themselves to being obedient to God. So he's demonstrating the conviction of these Old Testament saints. And he talks about by faith, uh, uh, verse four, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken. Uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse five and six. Verse seven, by faith, Noah, being warned of things uh, yet unseen, constructed the ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. Verse 9, by faith, he went to the land of promise, and so on, and so on, and so on. We have over and over again, later on in the chapter, he talks about prophets who were sawn in half. They were drawn in quarters, literally, pulled apart while they're screaming in agony, burned at the stake, because they were convinced in their mind of the promises of God held more value than their life, and so they devoted themselves to God. So you could go back to Job. Job is, is the earliest written book in the Old Testament. He's not the earliest saint. Abel would have been perhaps the earliest saint, but it's the earliest written book. And what remember what Job told his wife when his wife told him after he fell ill to all these ills and his family was killed and he lost his fortune. What did his wife tell him to do? Curse God and die. What did Job say? Shall we receive evil at the hand of the Lord? And, as well as good. He said, with all these things, Job never cursed God. Job was devoted to God. So how can devotion to God be a mystery that is not revealed until the New Testament? Because there's more than one kind of devotion for God. There is a kind of devotion for God that says no to the power of it, but there's a different power activating devotion to God for you and I than there was for the Old Testament saints. There is a different power involved. It was devotion to God, but it was a different devotion to God. It was produced by something. It came from a different source, and it resulted in something different, something greater. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. Statements similar to this occur several times in the Old Testament. <clears throat> this has the most um, clear, the, the most, the most bestest application for us, I think. 
uh, Hosea chapter 6, verse, verse 6 here. It says, this is God speaking here. He says, God says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The Old Testament saint demonstrated their devotion to God by being obedient to commandments. Did God desire them to keep the commandments? Yes, he did. Because, and, that, and by being obedient to those, to those commandments, they demonstrated devotion for God. But God desired something more. He didn't give them more. He gave us more. But he says right here what he desired. He gave them that. And, and when they were obedient to the law, he accepted that. He accepted that devotion, and he was well pleased with that. But what he really wanted more is he wanted individuals to be devoted to him because of a knowledge of God. They did not have that same type of knowledge of God that you and I have. This knowledge of God was not given to them, but it is given to us. And we're told what that is in John chapter 17. Go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Verse 1 says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. True knowledge of God is described here as eternal life. The Old Testament saint did not have that. They could demonstrate devotion to God by being obedient to commandments that were given to them, but they could only, they did so out of fear. It was fear-based service, fear-based fear devotion. God has given us something better. And that devotion to God that we have the capacity to demonstrate comes supernaturally from a person of the Godhead because giving imparting to us a knowledge of who God is. We have an understanding of who God is, a working knowledge, an experiential knowledge of God, because the three persons of the Godhead indwell us and impart to us his kind of life. And so the devotion to God that you and I can demonstrate is based on a knowledge of how to work or how to utilize that eternal life that we have. And that power comes from within because it's a power that's produced by one of the persons of the Godhead. That was not done for the Old Testament saint under law. The Old Testament saint under law obeyed the law because he was scared to death in and of his own human will, his own human self-effort. He made the decision, if I do this, I'm going to get stoned to death. And so I'm not going to do it because I'm scared to death what's going to happen to me. That was something that was generated from his own human strength, his own human will. God gave that to them, and they, he accepted that. But he desired devotion out of a knowledge for God. And that's what he's telling us in John 17, that we can be devoted to God now. <clears throat> we can demonstrate a devotion for God because <clears throat> we have a knowledge because of the kind of life we have. We can demonstrate devotion for God by living out his kind of life, using the power that he gives us to live out that kind of life. You see how different that is from the Old Testament saying? <clears throat> so when, when Paul is warning, warning Timothy to <clears throat> beware of individuals that demonstrate <clears throat> a kind of devotion for God, but deny the power of it, he's talking about <clears throat> individuals that are still trying to demonstrate godliness from an Old Testament fear-based, law-based system. That which he accepted in the Old Testament for service and devotion, he now tells us not only to not engage it, but he says actually withdraw from those that do, because there's a godliness now, a, a, a devotion, I keep saying God, there's a devotion for God that is much greater, much dearer, that is much more desirable to God than anything the Old Testament saint had. And because he's given us all the provisions for that, he no longer wants us to try to... <clears throat> function under a fear-based system using our own human strength and efforts to do it, 
He wants to utilize us to utilize the power that we have through a working knowledge of who God is and what he's doing within us to live out his kind of life. So we demonstrate that devotion for God by living out the eternal life that he's given us. Completely different than the Old Testament saint. Now, <clears throat> going back to First Timothy here, by the way, just take a pause back here and go back to the board here. By the very fact that the Latin, the, the Latin Vulgate, which was the Catholic Latin translation of the Bible, they translated our Hebrew words and, and our New Testament Greek words that we translated godly, they translated as piety. So if you use the Latin Vulgate as your authority for studying the scriptures, your understanding of godliness is going to be perverted by a misunderstanding of what piety is. Because piety used to mean kindness, which would give you an Old Testament idea of what kindness was, but it has changed meaning. So it doesn't mean kindness anymore. It means religious devotion. It means be, just being really religious. <clears throat> That's what it's, it's come to mean in modern day language. And so the idea of godliness in the latin vulgate is somebody who is just really religious and that's going to take you back to an old testament kind of personification of devotion to god somebody who's just <clears throat> obeying a bunch of, of of legalistic rules uh through the the efforts of their own human inabilities that's what what piety is going to take you to do the word godliness as it's used in the new testament devotion for god does not mean piety it does not mean religion it does not mean devotion to god Devotion to God, according to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, means that it is one who is devoted to God by living out his kind of life. It has nothing to do with being religious. It has to do with learning who God is and learning to use his power in our life to demonstrate a life that is in harmony with his life. What does that look like? Living a life that is in harmony with God's character, demonstrating his character, demonstrating love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering, <clears throat> faith. Those are qualities that uh, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room <clears throat> that were foreign to their experience. He said that, that he was going to give them joy, not as the world gives, but I'm going to give you my kind of joy, which is different than the world. He says, I'm going to give you my kind of peace, which is different than the world. <clears throat> He's, and, and elsewhere, we see the, the fruit of the Spirit are demonstrations of God's character, but it's not manifested by our own human efforts. It's manifested by the power of the Holy Spirit in our life as we function in our position in Christ. So Paul is actually telling Timothy what genuine, what the devotion for God, the actual devotion for God that he wants, he's going to go on now and explain that. Then the rest of the verse. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm getting hoarse. Back in, in 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery concerning. The genuine devotion, I'm adding the word genuine for emphasis, it's not in the text, but the devotion for God. Now we have an awkward statement. He, my translation says, he was manifested in the flesh. Now, if you look at this phrase and how it's translated, you're going to see a multitude of different translations because there are different Greek texts that handle this phrase differently. There are some texts that say, as, as mine does here, he was manifested in the flesh. This is the most popular uh, translation. You know, most English translations are going to go to say he was manifested in the flesh. This is the English Standard Version. I believe the Revised Standard Version says so. I think the NASB says he. It's the most common way that this phrase is translated. But some Greek manuscripts don't have he. Some have who. Who was manifested in the flesh. Some have which was manifested, manifested in the flesh, which is a neuter pronoun versus a personal pronoun. <clears throat> They're still personal pronouns. So you have some say he was manifested in the flesh, who was manifested in the flesh, which was manifested in the flesh. You have some translations say Christ was manifested in the flesh. And you have the King James, 
which you know, oftentimes you'll hear us making corrections to the to the King James, but this is one of the places where I believe the King James has it absolutely right because it, the, the text, and I double check this with my Greek inner, my received text interlinear that I have at home is that the King James was based out of, it says God was manifested in the flesh. Now, the difference is, this is all talking about something to do with deity, with a person of deity, but it should be fairly easy to rule out which translations are incorrect if we understand what a mystery really is. A mystery is something that wasn't revealed in the past, but is revealed now. <clears throat> so if we use a personal pronoun, whether we say he was manifest, who, who was referring to a person of God was manifest, which was, these are all personal pronouns that refer to a person of, of the Godhead. Was a person of the Godhead ever manifested in the flesh? In the Old Testament, before Paul wrote this here in Timothy, God was manifested in the flesh many times. It was called theophanies. He appeared as a person in the Old Testament many times. So these personal pronouns, I think, can safely be ruled out. But why would I, why would I say God would be the correct definition? The reason I say that, in, in my opinion, is because the in the, the Greek text that the King James is translated from, the word God or the title God is not preceded by the definite article, which means it's not talking about a person who was God manifested in the flesh. So he's not talking about a theophany where a person, you know, Jacob wrestled, wrestled with the Lord. That was a manifestation of God in the flesh. That was a person who is deity manifested in the flesh. But the title God or the name God without the definite article isn't emphasizing the person of God. It's emphasizing a quality that that characterizes God. So what this is actually saying, if, if the King James text that got the, the, this translation from is accurate, then what it's saying is, the great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of the devotion for God. God's quality, his character, was demonstrated in the flesh. And he describes how it was and when it was demonstrated in the flesh. <clears throat> it says, God's quality was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. So it's talking about the person, Jesus Christ, who took on a human nature, but he didn't leave his deity, he didn't lay his deity aside. He still was absolutely 100% God, but he took on a human nature and he came into the world and he demonstrated God's nature through the human agency as the God man. He demonstrated God's character. <clears throat> now, when you have a theophany in the Old Testament, you have a person of God oftentimes manifesting some little aspect of God's character, but it is extremely limited. If you only, if your knowledge of God only involved the revelation concerning the theophanies in the Old Testament, you're not going to have a very good understanding of who God is, what he's doing, what he's capable of, what he's like, what really makes him who he is. You're not going to understand uh, you may understand some of his power, a little bit of the fact that he can foretell the future because uh, he would sometimes come and prophesy things. But uh, when he was manifested in the flesh, that's why he said in the upper room, I'm going to give you my kind of joy. The disciples for three years watched him function in a manner that never ceased to appreciate what God the Father was doing in spite of the tremendous adversity that they all faced during that three years. The times the crowd screamed, uh, picked up stones to stone him. The, the times that <clears throat> that they didn't believe. The times he was. There were so many times that that uh, most people, if not all, <laughs> we would have given up and gone home with the adversity he faced. But he demonstrated a continual appreciation for what God was doing in spite of all. It was. It was just. It was supernatural because it was a quality of God's character that mankind hadn't seen before. When he faced those seven illegal trials that led up to his crucifixion, he never once demonstrated fear. He never once cried out about the injustice of it all. He demonstrated peace. He was calm. He demonstrated meekness because he had the power of God because he was God. He could have called down 10,000 angels as he told Satan on the, on the, on the uh, 
about when he, when he was tempted for those 30, 40 days, he could have called 10,000 angels to minister him. Uh, but his response wasn't to do that. It was to uh, just rebuke Satan. said, don't tempt the Lord your God. He was going to rely upon God's methodology. Now, he demonstrated meekness. He had power to call these 10,000 angels, but he withheld that power. For three years, mankind saw God's character like they had never seen it before. They saw someone demonstrating power, but under control. They saw joy. They saw peace. They saw love. They saw love when he was washing their feet. He, he took on the form of a slave by taking the most menial, uh, disgusting job and that was for the servant of the house. And the Lord of the heavens, the God of heavens, <laughs> took on the form of a servant and washed their feet. So he demonstrated, and he says, you know what I've done to you? Because I've loved you. I've demonstrated love, God's kind of love. So Christ demonstrated, when he became flesh, he demonstrated God's character like it had never come close to being demonstrated before. So when Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of devotion to genuine, the devotion for God, it is revealed, that genuine devotion for God was revealed by that one who demonstrated God's character in the flesh. And what he was demonstrating is that for the very first time, he made it evident that it was possible for a human being to demonstrate God's kind of life. Here and now, in this physical body, it is possible. Jesus Christ showed it, <clears throat> uh, made it very clear it was possible, <clears throat> but he was God himself and he didn't have a sin nature. Well, enter in the New Testament epistles. We have letter after letter after letter as Josh has been going over all of the uh, multitude of references to what we have because of our position in Christ, what we share together in Christ, what we have as a result of being placed into Christ, and the power that we have at our disposal because of that. And what this does as we study this subject out, we find out that even though we possess this in nature and Christ didn't possess this in nature, he has given us the power through the indwelling triune God to demonstrate that same kind of life, same kind of character that Jesus Christ did when he, even though he didn't have a sin nature and we do. He's demonstrating his power because he's showing us that he has the power to overcome our sin nature and we don't. And that's why this is the genuine devotion for God. The genuine de one, the person who's demonstrating a genuine devotion for God is that person who is genuinely yielding himself over to that, that one or those, those three persons of the Godhead who will produce God's kind of life within them and yielding, giving up his own desire for uh, uh, his own standard of living, my own set of rules and regulations that I have made for myself, that I was brought up to raise by my parents, by the church that I grew up in, by the religious system I served in, whatever it is, we all came into the Christian life with a bunch of baggage. And we continue to go on through the Christian life with a bunch of baggage. We keep getting inundated by errors concerning the Christian life around us. But genuine devotion for God, the devotion for God, is that one who does not sway, but maintains a continual functioning, utilizing the power of God to live out his life. And that's interesting that chapter four, verse one follows that now. It says, now the spirit expressly says that in later in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What are they gonna yield themselves over? The individuals that try to deceive you into thinking that you can do it on your own. You can develop or follow a set of rules or regulations that will take the place of this. And all it does is it places you back under some kind of a legal system that he tells us in the previous book to avoid those individuals. It used to be acceptable to God, but it no longer is. No longer, it's not only not acceptable, he actually actively dislikes. He says actively avoid those that try to teach that a devotion to God can be manifested by obedience to some lame set of rules and regulations that someone has come up with, whether it's Moses in the Old Testament or whether it's some religious system that you grew up in that, that takes totally different elements. Maybe it's your own mindset of what you think makes sense that God would want. We all have an idea of rules and regulations that we think that God would find acceptable. And God says, 
Don't pay heed to that. That's satanic deceit to try to convince you that you can do it on your own. And in so doing, that's going to lead you down the wrong path. So you're not going to be functioning in the realm of true devotion for God. <clears throat> so if we were going to accurately understand what New Testament godliness is, New Testament godliness is this word, is demonstrating a genuine devotion for God, but it's a devotion for God that's not based on fear like the Old Testament was. It's a devotion for God that is based on him producing his power to live out his life as light to the world. That's genuine devotion for God. So if you want to translate this godliness, I don't have a problem with that because what that means is that is describing being like God. It's described, it doesn't use the term, it doesn't say godlike, but it's demonstrating it. One of the final things that I, I'm going to say, just in closing, that I believe is one of the key reasons, and this is just my opinion, I haven't read this anywhere, but I suspect that one of the reasons why you won't find individuals talking, using this word godlike in our translations is for two reasons. <clears throat> Go to Genesis chapter 3. You have the term godlike. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, talking about Satan, or Lucifer is, that's not Lucifer, it's now Satan actually. Satan is talking to Eve. It says, uh, God knows that in the day you eat from it, your, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, Satan uses phrase, if you do this, you'll be like God. Was this some desirable characteristic, a desirable quality? No, this laid, set the stage for uh, Adam to trespass, transgress, and sin, which brought the ruin upon all mankind. If you go to um, yeah, Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 14, you have a similar phrase. Uh, it says, verse 12, Isaiah 14, 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Was this a desirable thing? Was this a demonstration of genuine devotion for God? No. We, and we can actually see by the way this is worded. He says, you have said in your heart, I will make myself like this. What he was convincing Eve to do. If you do this, you will make yourself like God because he's trying to keep this from you. But you can do something that on your own merit will make you like God. All you got to do is eat this and you'll be like God. So we have two statements in the Old Testament that actually use the term being like God and it uses it in terrible, in associated with terrible consequences. With uh, Lucifer's first, uh, brought the fall upon the angel of the entire angelic realm. When he threw that, that uh, uh, temptation in front of mankind, it brought the ruin upon all of mankind. And so this phrase, being like God, is twice used in the Old Testament of events that brought catastrophic ruin. So I suspect that there is great hesitancy for translators to use the phrase being like God because they have this Old Testament perce perception of what devotion to God is and devotion for God does not involve being like God because the two illustrations we have of one who said you'll be like God brought ruin. But the being like God that God's describing in the New Testament, being genuinely devoted for God, is not manipulating something on our own, using our own power, our own efforts to do something. It's being a yieldedness for God, and it's his living out his life through us. It's not us doing something of our own efforts. It's his some, doing something through, for us and through us as a demonstration of his power. That brings glory to him. Any questions on this? I know we covered a huge tough here. But, okay. But, oh, yes. Yeah. Just so in, in closing here, that idea of devotion to God, you, as you were just mentioning, 
it's really connected to that issue around a churl idea that yes. you're you by God's power, and that then over God's power. If, if it were going to use the term godliness, like I said, the term godliness does not really appear in the New Testament. But it's described because if we are genuinely devoting ourselves to God by allowing him to live his life through us, we're demonstrating qualities that look like God. We're demonstrating his kind of righteousness, his kind of joy, his kind of peace. Those are qualities that are God's qualities. So we can say those are God-like. But I want to be cautious when I say that because in Peter, it says that he's given us great and precious promises that we share in the divine nature. He doesn't say he actually gives it to us. We actually become, I'm just saying we have to be cautious with how far we go with that because that we don't leave the impression. We're saying we're like God. It could really leave the impression something that we're claiming to be deity ourselves. We're not deity. We never will be deity, but we can demonstrate his kind of life because we share the divine nature that he imparts to us. And, and so I uh, a little, little cautious of how far to go with that. I haven't quite worked in my mind how, how far I might go with that, but I'm just saying that what he's describing here is being like God. He's, his joy, his peace, his his quality, his character is demonstrated, can be demonstrated unadulterated uh, through, through our fleshly bodies in spite of our sin nature. So we can be like God in these specific areas. We can't be like God in all areas. I can never be, be eternal. I can never have power that he has i can have some power but i can never demonstrate omnipotence so i can never be god <laughs> but i can be like him in in certain capacities yes um, maybe a good way to describe the distinction is uh, one person used to describe it like this you go down and get a bucket of ocean, of ocean water from the coast you don't have the ocean but what you have in that bucket is like the ocean Looks exactly the same because it is exactly the same, just to a different extent. You can't say you have the ocean. Right. Does that kind of answer your question? Anything else? I'll chop you off again. We actually have, well, we're 30 seconds over, but that's better. Than, usually I'm five or 10 minutes over, so we've still got 10 minutes. <laughs> Father, we thank you that we're not left in the dark as to how you want us to live our lives and we can demonstrate a genuine devotion to you and you make it possible by empowering us to do that you don't we don't rely on our own strength it's just it's truly remarkable and that was something that was never revealed before before christ became uh, took on flesh and demonstrated that in his earthly ministry and it's been possible for the last two thousand years for your people to demonstrate a devotion to you that far surpasses anything that, that a saint could in previous times, not just under the law, but going clear back to, to Abel, to the very, to the very beginning of, of mankind's existence. We can demonstrate a quality of devotion to you that far surpasses anything that the human mind, human mind could have ever, ever uh, fathomed before this revelation. We thank you for your grace in making this possible. Thank you very much. That was, that was helpful.